I will not sign a bill into law that does not lower costs for middle class families. Yeah, but will it raise taxes? Will it raise their taxes? We must know. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW, In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, in Palinville, New York on WLPP, Grand Rapids WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Stop Suppressing the Vote, New Hampshire. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle's KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, Stop Suppressing the Vote, Wisconsin, and of course, Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF, not to mention Houston's KPFT, Stop Suppressing the Vote, Texas. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker. All-around swell fellow, says me, from Bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, Coming up, it is Election Day on Tuesday in a number of states around the country, as we are now just one year out from the 2020 presidential election. And if we've got elections in America, then guess what? We've got Republican voter suppression in America just as certainly. But it looks like the uh, GOP has found a new target for their suppression this year as we prepare to head into another presidential election year. One of those states with elections on Tuesday is Desi Doyen's home state of <laughs> Texas. Yes, where they uh, they get very creative when it comes to suppressing yes, the vote. Yes, they do, don't they? Hi, Des. Hello. And uh, speaking of Texas, by the way, as we go to air, former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke is announcing that he is dropping out of the running for the Democratic presidential nomination, while media reports also say that at least his aides say he will not seek to run for the U.S. Senate in Texas, where many had hoped that he would take on uh, Republican Senator John Cornyn. Well, you know, but there is a good crop of candidates who are vying for that position right now. Are you now. sure? Yeah. Okay. We'll see if you're right about that. I think it's a shame. I think, uh, well, you know, Beto changes his mind a lot, so we will see. Anyway, as to voter suppression, and yes, as to Texas, we will get uh, to that in a bit today. But first, 
At the 2020 Democratic debate in Ohio last month, surging progressive Democratic candidate Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts was pressed by moderators and candidates alike as to how she planned to pay for her Medicare for All proposal, akin to Bernie Sanders' proposal, which former Vice President Joe Biden charges would cost Americans some $30 trillion over the next 10 years. She was pushed, even by Sanders, to admit that the plan would raise taxes on the middle class, as Sanders admits his single-payer plan would, but only, he says, because they would no longer be paying the higher costs of health care premiums and co-pays and out-of-pocket expenses, etc., that Americans, at least those who actually have health insurance now and millions still do not, that Americans currently pay for overall health care costs under our nation's current hodgepodge of private plans, Medicare, Medicaid, and, of course, the Obama-era Affordable Care Act. Uh, here was one of those moments during the Ohio debate as Warren was being pressed on this point by The New York Times' Mark Lacey. You have not specified how you're going to pay for the most expensive plan, Medicare for all. Will you raise taxes on the middle class for pay, to pay for it, yes or no? So I have made clear what my principles are here, and that is costs will go up for the wealthy and for big corporations and for hardworking middle class families. Costs will go down. Senator Warren, to be clear, Senator Sanders acknowledges he's going to raise taxes on the middle class to pay for Medicare for all. You've endorsed his plan. Should you acknowledge it too? So let me be clear on this. Costs will go up for the wealthy. They will go up for big corporations and for middle class families. They will go down. I will not sign a bill into law that does not lower costs for middle-class families. Well, she was uh, pretty adamant about that. She did not want to say that middle-class taxes will go up, even though many, including Bernie, felt that they must go up and that they will go up, even if those Americans would end up paying less overall for health care. Now, many were critical of her for refusing to say that and or confused at the time, including myself, as to why she would not just admit that, you know, given overall health care costs would be lower on average than they are for those same Americans right now, but that their taxes would, in fact, go up to pay for it. Well, Today, perhaps we have an idea about why she did not want to admit that, as she released a detailed policy proposal on Friday in which she continues to insist that the middle class will not pay higher taxes under her Medicare for All proposal, and she explains how that will happen in great detail. According to NBC News on Friday, Senator Elizabeth Warren released a detailed plan that she says would fully fund a Medicare for All bill and cover every American without premiums or deductibles, all with, quote, not one penny in middle class tax increases. That, according to a 9,300-word post by Elizabeth Warren at Medium on Friday, spelling out her plan in very specific detail. I think it's fair to say more specific detail than any other plan, including Bernie Sanders, where uh, Sanders offers a menu of possible options for lawmakers to choose from as to how his would be paid for. Warren details specific ways 
uh, that her plan would keep combined public and private health spending just under $52 trillion over the next 10 years, which is in line with current projections under current existing health care law, but would require the federal government to absorb some $20.5 trillion in new spending But that spending is currently being paid by American consumers through their private insurance premiums and co-pays and deductibles and the cost of prescription drugs, etc., in a nation that pays nearly twice as much for health care as the rest of the developed world, but with worse results. Warren seeks to use efficiency savings generated by Medicare for All to cover the currently uninsured, all of them, at a similar total cost, and add new benefits for dental, vision, and long-term care. Again, for everyone. Oh, I like that. You know, dental and vision, hey, because, you know, your mouth and your eyes are part of your body. You think? Sort of? (laughs) Medicare for All is about the same price as our current path and cheaper over time, Warren says in her Medium post, detailing her extraordinarily ambitious plan. She says that means the debate isn't really about whether the United States should pay more or less. It's about who should pay. Warren places most of the revenue burden on businesses and the wealthy. She plans to carry over almost all existing health funding from employers and state governments, while also levying a variety of new taxes on the rich, on corporations and high earning investors including doubling her signature 3% wealth tax on billionaires to 6%. Again, that is a tax increase on billionaires, probably not on you, not on the middle class who, she says, will not pay higher taxes and will, in fact, save billions of dollars in premiums, deductibles, and copays in the bargain. Warren backs up her revenue and cost estimates with 44 pages of analysis, from experts, including former International Monetary Fund chief uh, chief economist Simon Johnson, former Obama economic advisor Betsy Stevenson, Moody's chief economist Mark Zandi, and former Obama-appointed Medicare and Medicaid administrator Dr. Donald Berwick, all of whom are well-respected experts in uh, uh, in uh, in this plan, who argue that her numbers actually do add up as currently drawn out. Politically, the hotly anticipated white paper from Warren may serve to quell critics and fellow Democratic 2020 opponents, at least for the moment, after the surging progressive has maintained a lot of fire from both Republicans and fellow Democrats in recent weeks for her unwillingness to detail just exactly how she would pay for her plan. And even some fire from Bernie Sanders on that. His own plan she had previously endorsed, uh, and Sanders uh, sort of dinged her for her unwillingness to say that she would, in fact, increase middle-class taxes to pay for it. Well, now she has published a plan, and it does not raise middle-class taxes, at least as currently proposed. At the same time, Warren has challenged those Democratic candidates who oppose Medicare for all to, quote, put forward their own plan to cover everyone without costing the country anything more in health care spending and while putting 11 trillion dollars back in the pockets of the American people, as she says her plan does. 
She called, she describes that $11 trillion as substantially larger than the largest tax cut in American history. If they are unwilling to do that, she argues those candidates, quote, should concede that they think it's more important to protect the eye-popping profits of private insurers and drug companies and the immense fortunes of the top 1% and giant corporations. She adds one final shot. We need plans, not slogans. Well, that sounds like a good slogan. Joining us now to discuss this plan and the politics around it is our friend Alice Olstein, who writes about Warren's plan today at Politico, where she covers the health care beat after years of doing similar at Talking Points Memo. Alice Olstein, welcome back to the broadcast. Thank you. Elizabeth Warren has put out a lot of detailed proposals for a lot of things, but given the attention that health care has been given in the 2020 Democratic primaries and the fact that Democratic voters cite health care as their biggest concern, Warren's proposal today is a very big deal, is it not? It definitely is, and it's interesting that there has been so much focus and pressure on her to produce a plan to pay for a plan that she didn't write, a right. plan, right. Um, but she has embraced it, and since she has made her personal brand being the woman with a plan for everything, it makes sense why she was pressed on this and why she felt that she had to put something serious out there. So she has vowed in the past, and she does again today in her proposal, that there would be, quote, not one penny in middle-class tax increases. Is that even possible? And how, if you can tell me in somewhat less than 9,300 words, does she plan to do that? (laughs) So it's interesting that this has become a sticking point, but it makes sense. I mean, we are a country that is obsessed with taxes, and in the past, presidential candidates um, saying that their plans would raise or cut taxes has Mm -hmm. been a huge motivator for people. So... The way she gets around this is by financing a huge portion of the plan um, by going after employers, only certain employers, mm-hmm. and saying that, look, they spend a lot of money now paying for their workers' uh, health insurance premiums to private companies. Mm-hmm. They would instead pay that same amount, a little bit less, and you know it would get less and less over time to the federal government mm-hmm. for Medicare for All. And so it's sort of like a payroll tax, but it's interesting how it is structured, I think, intentionally uh, to not technically be a payroll tax, because then one could argue that it it is a tax on the middle class, Mm. because every time there are payroll taxes, that comes out of workers' Mm. salaries. And so this would as well. However, you can very fairly argue that currently all of the money uh, bosses spend now on health insurance premiums also comes out of workers' salaries. Well, yeah, and that's what I'm trying to understand here. Basically, so it's it's not a, a technically not a payroll tax, but it is the money that employers are currently spending on these private uh, health insurance plans. Instead of giving it to the private insurers, they would give that essentially that same amount of money to the federal government to pay for Medicare for all. Am, am I understanding that correctly? Yes. And so what's interesting is that it is sort of a flat number Mm -hmm. across the board for the entire workforce. Instead of a payroll tax is structured as a percentage of people's salaries. Mm -hmm. So it leans 
heavier on the higher end of the scale and lower on the lower end. And so I've seen some commentary out there saying this is actually a bit of a regressive take on it because it's Mm. it's sort of a flat per employee uh, measure across the board, not taking into account how much those employees earn. Now, this would only apply to, and and of course, this is just one uh, element. There's a lot of elements of how she pays for all of this. But just as far as the payments uh, from employers go, this would only Mm -hmm. apply to large businesses who are already essentially paying that amount to the private insurers, correct? In other words, small businesses correct. who do not pay for employee health care now would still not have to pay more under this plan. That's correct. And then she also adds a piece in there that companies with unionized workforces would get a, a bit of a discount on mm-hmm. on what they would have to pay to the government for health care. So it's incentivizing companies to um, organize. Yeah, that was actually, it's kind of a neat trick here that she, uh, and you highlighted in your report today at Politico, where, yeah, if you're a union shop, uh, you actually will uh, will, will pay less, uh, essentially, uh, which is pretty clever because you've had some unions who have been, uh, as you describe, uh, mixed reactions to a single-payer plan. Any reaction yet from those unions to that particular uh, mechanism? Not that I've seen, but it's been interesting to see how um, first Sanders and now Warren have made explicit sort of carve-outs for unions in their healthcare proposals, I think, to account for the anxiety some large unions have expressed about this. Mm-hmm. They say, look, we have bargained so hard for these uh, generous private health plans, and we don't, we're afraid of losing what we have now. Of course, some unions, many unions, including some of the biggest unions in the country, uh, say the opposite. Say, we hate having to bargain for health care. We could instead spend that energy bargaining for salary increases and better mm-hmm. working conditions, et cetera. Uh, we want to go to single payer yesterday. So, yeah. um, like I said, it's been a mixed reaction. And uh, our friend David Dayan over at the American Prospect uh, notes on this point uh, what he calls a, an ingenious twist here where employers, he says, operating under a collective bargaining agreement would have their per head tax actually reduced if they pass mm-hmm. any savings under that onto workers in wages or benefits. In other words, the plan would incentivize collective bargaining, not just for workers, but also for employers as well. They would save money. Right, right. And so I think it'll be interesting to see um, what the reaction is from labor, but also Mm -hmm. from, for instance, there was some concern because um, small companies who don't have to provide health care currently but who choose to in order to attract good workers, mm-hmm. they would have to pay. And so it's sort of dinging them for having done the right thing previously. Right, right. There's also a uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in increased revenue through two different, uh, at least two different uh, things, but two major things. One, this assumes a rollback of the Trump tax cuts. Though it uh, wouldn't that uh, essentially amount to increased uh, taxes for some middle class Americans and two, perhaps even more controversially, this would uh, include adopting the 2013 immigration uh, plan, the comprehensive immigration plan that did not get passed so that new immigrants would finally pay full taxes and that would increase revenues by hundreds of billions of dollars. Correct. Yes, and so the issue there is that you are conditioning payment for one sweeping 
uh, very hard to pass plan on another right. very hard to pass plan. Um, this the 2013 uh, immigration comprehensive immigration reform bill couldn't pass the Senate even when Democrats were in control. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is, you know, an extremely heavy lift to say the least. Now, a big cost saving in the plan uh, is supposedly due to the money that doctors will save by cutting pretty much all of their administrative costs in having to deal with filing for reimbursements from all sorts of different insurers and so forth. So will that in reality, Alice, offset the lower payments that these doctors may now receive uh, when they're forced under uh, the Warren plan to charge Medicare rates? versus uh, private insurer rates, I guess, for for all of their services. And have we heard the blowback yet from the American Medical Association on that notion? Well, the medical providers have been mobilizing all year long, not just against Medicare for all, but for all of the more incremental reforms as well. They do not want to take a haircut on any of this. Mm -hmm. And this would be far more than a haircut. This would be a very deep cut. Um, And yes, they would no longer have uncompensated care for uninsured people. That is true. And there could be some administrative time and money savings. That is also true. But it takes takes time and money to build public programs. Um, And, you know, uh, that is true for the public insurance programs we currently have. And so there's going to be a lot of back and forth arguing about how much administrative savings uh, there would be under one single public insurance plan. Well, she certainly gets points for ambition here. I mean, this thing is, uh, you know, hold no bars as far as uh, what she is uh, planning to do and how she is planning to essentially restructure a huge portion of the American economy. In her her plan, uh, she pushes back on the more moderate 2020 opponents like uh, Buttigieg and Biden and Harris uh, to say that they must, quote, explain why their choice of private insurance plans is more important than being able to choose the doctor that's best for you without worrying about whether they are in network or not in other words under her plan you can go I guess to any doctor you want have you heard have you received or heard any response yet from uh, from those camps from those uh, more moderate Democratic camps well uh, Biden's campaign came out very quickly uh, with a statement panning Warren's proposal mm-hmm. saying it was using mathematical gymnastics and light of hand um, and questioning her calculations. But I think that um, she could be successful here. So she's trying to change the conversation on the two sort of biggest vulnerabilities of Medicare for all that we've seen so far politically, Mm -hmm. um, which are the so-called choice question or issue where moderates say, you know, people should be able to choose whether they keep their private insurance or move to a public plan. We want to give them the option. We don't want to force them to do anything. And the cost question, which is tied to this tax debate. And so she's trying to flip the tables on both of these things and saying, okay, I've laid out where I stand. You haven't said for your plans how you're going to pay for it. And you haven't said how your plan um, maintains people's right to choose their actual doctors, which is what we should be talking about rather than choosing insurance. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a completely fair point to say that under our current system, yes, you technically have a choice of insurance companies, but here at my work, you know, they could decide to uh, put us on a different plan 
next month and mm-hmm. we wouldn't have a say in that matter or you know you change jobs you get laid off there's lots of ways that you don't get to choose in our current system and so i think that warren is sort of attempting to put defenders of the status quo and those arguing for more incremental changes to the status quo in the hot seat there has been a debate throughout all of these uh, democratic debates uh, and we're hearing it more and more from uh, some of the moderate candidates uh, who are arguing that we should not be taking away Way private insurance plans that Americans uh, may like, uh, and that argument, frankly, makes sense to me. I hadn't understood until you know perhaps now why we need to outlaw essentially private insurance. But as I understand it, uh, it's because her plan makes clear that all of the money that is currently being spent by employers is needed to pay for single payer. So that money would then be shifted uh, to the federal government to cover the costs for health care for everyone. And that is why, essentially, uh, we would have to take away those private insurance plans and those uh, and put those private insurers out of business. Am I understanding that correctly? So they argue that the private insurance industry is sort of inherently against the interest of providing uh, affordable health care to everyone. They say that if there's a profit motive anywhere in the system Mm -hmm. that incentivizes not covering people, not covering certain claims, um, and that that is their argument. Um, and so they they, they being uh, Warren and, they, and the Sanders. Medicare for all. Right. Mm-hmm. OK. Mm-hmm. And the lawmakers in Congress who have uh, co-sponsored these bills. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they say that any sort of public option or, um, you know, middle of the road plan that maintains the private insurance industry is still um, maintaining those profit motives that will lead to some people being denied care. I also think it's important to think of all of this debate as one big giant negotiation. And I think even the most diehard Medicare for All supporters that I've talked to will say, look, I don't think what we're debating and what we're proposing now is what what, what we're ultimately going to get. But mm-hmm. if we don't have a big ambitious opening bid, what we ultimately land on won't be as good. And so why negotiate against ourselves is what they say, you know, at the outset and settle for something smaller at the outset when we know that we're going to have to be bargained down and compromised in the end. I mean, I guess we can look at the Affordable Care Act as an example of that Mm -hmm. um, for for better or worse. I mean, originally it had long-term care. Originally it had a public option. Those were stripped out. What we got covered a lot of people who weren't covered before, but didn't cover everyone. Mm -hmm. So Um, I think it's important to think of it that way. And honestly, the conversation happening on the campaign trail is very divorced from the conversation happening on Capitol Hill, um, where lawmakers are not even able to pass much narrower, more incremental pieces of health care legislation. I mean, look at the debate over um, surprise billing this year, where Democrats and Republicans all agree that we need to do something so that people who go to the emergency room, who think they're in network and get, you know, a $20,000 bill, Mm -hmm. aren't hit with that. Everyone agrees that that's not fair and they've been working all year on a solution and it doesn't look like they're going to be able to get it done. And so the faith that they'll be able to get a much, much bigger, more sweeping reform done is, you know, it's debatable. Well, and that was sort of my last question here, because you spoke to some progressive uh, members of Congress before the uh, plan was released and they were skeptical about the idea of releasing 
so many specific details. Uh, Bernie Sanders instead sort of put out a menu of uh, potential ways to pay for it that Congress could choose from. And yes, this is a Congress mm-hmm. which can't even pass the sort of lowest hanging fruit and wildly right. popular, you know, gun safety measures to, you know, for universal background checks that everybody mm-hmm. uh, agrees with. So, I mean, is it even conceivable, Alice Holstein, that a detailed plan this complicated, this sweeping, that would be such a structural sea change to not just the U.S. healthcare system, but to the economy itself, that it could possibly be enacted in our current era of divisive, you know, sort of right-wing corporate-controlled politics in D.C.? Well, I like I said, what ends up actually getting debated and passed will not look like what we're talking about now. Um, and how close it looks like to what we're talking about now will depend on uh, who turns out to vote in 2020 and who mm. sits in those seats in the House and the Senate. Um, but I, because Man, elections matter. The 2018 yep. elections that flipped the House. Yep. I mean, we could we could have seen Obamacare repealed had that not happened. Um, and so these elections, including midterms, have a massive impact on the kind of policy that is can be passed on the federal level. Well, uh, Elizabeth Warren was critical of other candidates for not dreaming big enough in their campaigns. She certainly is dreaming big here. And it's good to see her put some uh, actual uh, numbers to it uh, with the support of a whole bunch of experts so far. Uh, Alice Olstein, uh, really appreciate you joining us on short notice today. Uh, as this uh, moves forward, I suspect we'll be checking back in. You can find Alice's work, as always, at politico.com. And on the Twitters at Alice Olstein, uh, where she uh, covers, has been covering the debate over health care coverage for years. And I suspect that debate will continue. Alice, really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much. You bet. Well, yes, she's right. The end. You're right. The debate is definitely going to continue ad nauseum, ad infinitum for the next couple of years. But I will say that um, I do like the part of the plan that includes long-term care costs. Yeah. There's a big story in the Washington Post uh, about the rising costs of long-term care, calling it a long-term care crisis. The article is, for many families, the costs of long-term care are horrifying. And when you read the article, you will see they are indeed horrifying. And you know what? And not to mention uh, dental and visual. I have never understood why isn't dental considered health care? And Medicare, by the way, Medicare does not even cover hearing aids. Your ears are part of your body, too. So, yes, it's a lot that uh, that our system does not cover right now. So I guess the question is, would her system be better? And well, it sounds like it would be. A lot of potential change is coming. But, of course, that's only if uh, a Democrat wins next year. And, boy, howdy, are Republicans now pulling out the stops to keep that from happening. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be back with that story right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. The stars at night are big and bright. 
<laughs> Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Okay. Sorry, I am contractually required. I know, to do that. constitutionally required. Yeah. Uh, did I say it's uh, the Bradcast? Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. That, of course, is Desi Doyen from Texas. And though we always enjoy when we play that song, it's usually not good news. True. Just saying. As noted at the top of the show today, it is Election Day this Tuesday in a number of states around the country. Yes, including Texas, where they are holding constitutional elections with some 10 different amendments on the ballot on Tuesday. And speaking, by the way, of Texas, as I mentioned at the top of the show, former Democratic congressman congressman from Texas, Beto O'Rourke, has announced he is dropping out of the race for president, but uh, his aides say he will not run for Senate next year against Republican John Cornyn for reasons that I do not entirely understand yet. Also, this Tuesday, the great Commonwealth of Virginia is holding elections for their state legislature, where the potential for Democrats to at long last regain majority control of the House of Delegates is on the line. Uh, after the state was forced to redraw a number of legislative districts that were found in federal court to be unconstitutional racial gerrymanders. Uh, That election for control of the House in Virginia is key because it will determine which party controls congressional redistricting after the 2020 census. Uh, So there is a lot on the line in that state election on Tuesday. All of this almost exactly one year out from next year's critical presidential election, where a new APMTV poll shows one in three Americans between 15 and 34, that's a bit more than uh, 30 percent, approve of Donald Trump. Just 30 percent compared to about 39 percent of their elders. Young voters do not like Donald Trump. They consider him to be a, quote, racist, quote, generally dishonest and, quote, mentally unfit, according to the poll. By two to one and more, they differ with Donald Trump and Republicans on health care, on climate change, on immigration and on student debt refinancing. So naturally, Republicans are targeting young voters all over the country, particularly in uh, battleground states with uh, new voter suppression schemes, because, of course, that is what Republicans do rather than, you know, come up with ideas that those same voters might actually wish to vote for. As Michael Wines reported recently uh, in The New York Times at Austin Community College in Texas, Civics is an unwritten part of the curriculum, so much so that for years the school has tapped into its own funds to set up temporary early voting sites on nine of its 11 campuses. No more, however. This past spring, the Texas legislature outlawed polling places that did not stay open for the entire 12-day early voting period. When the state's elections take place on Tuesday, those nine sites, uh, which logged many of the nearly 14,000 ballots that full-time students had cast last year, those sites will be shuttered. So will six campus polling places at colleges in Fort Worth, two in Brownsville, on the Mexico border, and other polling places at schools statewide. The story at Austin Community College is but one example of a political drama playing out nationwide 
After decades of treating elections as an afterthought, college students have now begun voting in force for some strange reason. Their turnout in the 2018 midterms uh, was 40.3% of uh, 10 million students as tracked by Tufts University. That was more than double the rate in the 2014 midterms, easily, by the way, exceeding an already robust increase in national turnout. Yes, the students turn out higher than uh, the, the national rate. Energized by issues like climate change and the Trump presidency, students have suddenly emerged as a potentially crucial voting block in the 2020 general election. And almost as suddenly, the Times reports, Republican politicians around the country are throwing up roadblocks between students and voting booths. Now, uh, they cover a, a number of stories that we have covered ad hoc over the past year or two on this program. But uh, rounding up some of these is just amazing if you look state after state. The Times reports, not coincidentally, the barriers are rising fastest in political battleground states and places like Texas, where one party control is eroding. Students lean strongly Democratic in a March poll by the Institute of Politics at Harvard. Forty five percent of college students identified as Democrats compared to 29 percent who call themselves independents and 24 percent who call themselves Republicans. The threat to election integrity in Texas is real and the need to provide additional safeguards is increasing. <laughs> That's yeah, from right. the uh, state attorney general, Ken Paxton. Isn't who, he under indictment? Yes, he is for felony securities fraud. Yeah. But uh, he's very worried about the uh, threat to election integrity in Texas. Uh, that's what he said last year while announcing one of the uh, periodic crackdowns uh, he, he pretends to do on uh, illegal voting. Nonetheless, evidence of widespread fraud is non-existent and the restrictions fit an increasingly unabashed pattern of Republican politicians' efforts to discourage voters likely to oppose them. Nancy Thomas of uh, the uh, Tufts Institute uh, said efforts to chill college students voting are despicable and very frustrating. She cites the headline example. That's New Hampshire. There, a Republican-backed law took effect this fall requiring newly registered voters who drive to establish, quote, domicile in the state by securing New Hampshire driver's licenses and auto registrations, which can cost hundreds of dollars annually. That fight has been going on for years in that state as Republicans continue to try to do this because according to the Tufts study, six in 10 New Hampshire college students come from outside the state, a rate among the nation's highest. There's a lot of great colleges and universities in New Hampshire. And so Republicans have been trying to stop student voters from voting there for years, despite the fact that the Supreme Court said that, yes, students, when they go away to college, may vote where they are going uh, to school. And yet New Hampshire, the Republicans who run the state, continue to try to prevent that from happening. As early as 2011, the state's Republican House Speaker at the time, William O'Brien, promised to clamp down on unrestricted voting by students, calling them, quote, kids voting liberal, voting their feelings, 
with no life experience, unquote. Well, we can't have those people vote. As opposed to, say, climate deniers who are voting without any science experience. Well, that's right. Uh, those kids, they vote the wrong way. Not like, you know, those of us uh, Republicans with life experience of learning facts from watching Fox News for all of these years. In Florida, uh, their Republican Secretary of State outlawed early voting sites at state universities in 2014, only to see 60,000 voters cast on-campus ballots in 2018 after a federal court overturned the ban. So 60,000 votes were saved by the federal courts in that case. This year, however, the state legislature has effectively reinstated that ban, slipping a clause into a new election uh, law that requires all early voting sites to offer, quote, sufficient non-permitted parking, which is in short supply on these uh, densely packed campuses. But, you know, it's a real concern for the Florida legislature who, who would rather there be fewer polling places and the lack of uh, parking space at universities where those pesky kids vote, that's a great way to suppress their votes, even those uh, who go to school there and have parking permits already. Yeah, and also because a lot of them live there, so they don't need to drive to the polling place. Correct, and that's the whole point. In North Carolina, Republicans enacted a photo ID voting restriction last year that recognized student ID cards as valid, but its requirements are so cumbersome that major state universities are unable to comply. A later revision relaxed the rules somewhat, but there's all kinds of confusion. And fewer than half of the state's 180-plus accredited schools have sought to certify their IDs for voting purposes. In Wisconsin, Republicans, yes, another swing state like North Carolina and Florida and perhaps even Texas now. Uh, in Wisconsin, the Republicans have also imposed tough restrictions on using student IDs for voting purposes. The state requires, for example, poll workers to check signatures only on student IDs. But some, uh, some schools issuing modern IDs that also serve as debit cards and dorm room keys they don't have signatures on them, which are considered to be a security risk. Oh, well, too bad, students. The law, by the way, in Wisconsin also requires that IDs used for voting expire within two years, whereas most college ID cards have, yes, four-year expiration dates. Oh, darn the luck. That's and, just, uh, just a coincidence that they designed it to be specifically that way. Even students with acceptable IDs, by the way, must also show proof of enrollment before being allowed to vote, even with the IDs. Getting the picture here, uh, voting age college students, they are coming for you this year. While legislators call the rules anti-fraud measures, Wisconsin has not recorded a case of intentional student fraud in anyone's recent memory, says Barry Burden, the director of elections, uh, research, the Elections Research Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. But a healthy turnout of legitimate student voters could easily tip the political balance in many of these closely divided states, including Wisconsin, where Donald Trump is said to have won by less than 23,000 votes in 2016. 
That's if he did win by less than 23,000 votes in 2016. We were never actually allowed to, you know, count the ballots to make sure. But that's what they tell us. At the same time, some 200,000 voters in Wisconsin, according to an academic study, did not vote in 2016 due to a lack of the ID that is now needed or because they believe they didn't have the type of photo ID now needed to vote in the Badger State. The University of Wisconsin system alone enrolls more than 170,000 students, again, in a state that went to Trump by less than 23,000. So, yes, these numbers on these campuses can make a very big difference and could be particularly decisive in 2020. For example, Senator Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire, a Democrat, she won in 2016 by barely 1,017 votes over her Republican rival, Kelly Ayotte. So, yeah, uh, a small change to the uh, voting laws that restricts uh, student voters in New Hampshire. Yes, that could make a lot of difference in that state. Governor Roy Cooper of North Carolina, a Democrat, he won in that same year, 2016, by just about 10,000 votes in a state with nearly half a million undergraduates. So let's keep them from voting, shall we? That's a way that we can win. Repeated studies have shown that making voting convenient improves turnout. And while it's difficult to say with certainty what causes turnout to decline, the Times notes anecdotal evidence suggests that barriers to student voting has done just that. Nationwide student turnout in the 2016 presidential election exceeded that of the 2012 presidential vote. But according to Tufts, it fell sharply in Wisconsin where the state's photo ID law first applied to students that year. So everywhere else, turnout was up in Wisconsin. Turnout was down among students under that law. Texas law requires educators to distribute voter registration forms to high school students. So that's good. But that requirement appears to be ignored by most of the state's 3,700 secondary schools. And while states allow students to pre-register, many of them, at 16 or 17, not Texas, uh, Texas bars students from registering until two months before their 18th birthday. That is the nation's most restrictive rule. Texas's voter ID law among, is among the most onerous in the nation. It still excludes college and university ID cards. It allows uh, gun uh, licenses, but oh, yeah. not student and uh, university ID cards. It also allows um, only allows the use of out-of-state driver's licenses that many students carry if voters sign a form swearing that they could not reasonably acquire an accepted ID, and then they have to explain why. So you just make it harder for people. Again, this is not uh, meant to curb any fraud, the out-of-state driver's license uh, proves who you are. When you uh, sign up to vote originally, you have to give uh, proof of residency and all of that stuff. Some Texas schools have sought for years to lower those barriers, but they have not been successful. 
uh, in many cases. Some, however, like Austin Community College, has taken matters into its own hands. They sponsor their own campus voting on mobile voting with mobile voting sites. It gives uh, there. They also give their employees two hours off during every election in order to cast ballots. Dollar for dollar, this report says, mobile voting sites were, quote, the most effective program we had. That, according to Dana de, de Beauvoir, the Travis County clerk and chief elections official. But thanks to the new Texas law, if those mobile sites cannot be there for all 12 days of early voting, they are not allowed to be there for any days of early voting. That's how they're doing it this year. But voting rights advocates now are voting back uh, or fighting back on uh, on Wednesday, according to the Texas Tribune, worried about the suppression of young voters in 2020. National and Texas Democrats are suing the state over the newly implemented election measure that's triggered the shuttering of these early voting places, including on college campuses in a federal lawsuit filed on Wednesday in Austin. The Texas Democratic Party was joined by the uh, Democratic campaign arm for the U.S. House and Senate. They allege that the state's move to effectively end the use of what were known as temporary or mobile early voting sites is unconstitutional because it specifically discriminates against young voters by shrinking their access to the ballot box. HB 1888 now mandates that based on where they live, some voters will enjoy the same consistent access to early voting they had previously, but voters who live near now-defunct temporary voting sites, especially young voters, will suffer reduced or eliminated access to their franchise. The Democrats claim in the lawsuit, citing violations of the 1st, the 14th, and the 26th Amendments to the U.S. Constitution. The Dems, Dems are asking the federal judge to block the state from implementing this bill. As once again, uh, Democrats will be forced to use their uh, limited resources to go to court in case after case, as they're having to do here in Texas. Again, for no good reason, there's not actually any sort of fraud. Uh, Texas, as uh, Des, you said, they come up with wildly creative ways to suppress the vote. Well, oh, that's yeah. what they have done here in Texas. They are claiming that, well, this is to prevent voter suppression, because if they can't stay open for all of the 12 days of early voting, they should not be open at all. Orwellian logic. The Democrats allege in direct contravention of the 26th Amendment, Texas enacted HB 1888 with the intent and effect of preventing newly enfranchised young Texans from effectively exercising their right to vote. Certainly sounds like they did. Uh, we'll keep our eyes on that. It will not be settled, of course, for Tuesday's elections in the Lone Star State, unfortunately. But hopefully that lawsuit and others that are sure to come in the weeks and the months ahead will be able to undo the damage to our democracy that Republicans once again and still are purposely attempting to inflict on it. Yes, we will be paying close attention. Hope you will as well. All right. Quick break. And we are back with our uh, closing few minutes on the broadcast today and some audio we did not get to play 
uh, on the same day that uh, the U.S. House voted on their rules for impeaching Donald J. Trump. We'll get to that right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We covered on our previous Bradcast in detail the historic passage of the resolution governing the rules with which the U.S. House of Representatives will move forward with the ongoing impeachment inquiry of Donald Trump, including a number of remarks from a number of lawmakers on both sides of the aisle. There was one more, however, that I had hoped to run, but we ran short on time. 32-year-old freshman Democratic Congresswoman Katie Hill of California elected in last November's blue tsunami election. She stunned fellow Democrats and her constituents when last weekend she abruptly announced her intention to resign from Congress amidst an ugly divorce battle, an ethics investigation regarding an affair with a staffer, which she denies, and nude pictures of her published at several right-wing websites, which she suggests were shared with them by her husband, who she describes as abusive, as she cast her last vote in the House on Thursday in favor of the resolution for the impeachment guidelines. Hill then, in her final fiery remarks on the House floor, vowed to fight on against a, quote, misogynist culture that gleefully consumed my naked pictures, capitalized on my sexuality and enabled my abusive ex to continue that abuse, this time with the entire country watching, while going on to condemn the double standard that punishes women while men like President Trump and two different U.S. Supreme Court justices remain in office despite being credibly accused of sexual abuse and violence. I am leaving now because of a double standard. I'm leaving because I no longer want to be used as a bargaining chip. I'm leaving because I didn't want to be peddled by papers and blogs and websites used by shameless operatives for the dirtiest gutter politics that I've ever seen. I'm leaving because there is only one investigation that deserves the attention of this country, and that's the one that we voted on today. Today, I ask you all to stand with me and commit to creating a future where this no longer happens to women and girls. The way to overcome this setback is for women to keep showing up, to keep running for office, to keep stepping up as leaders, because the more we show up, the less power they have. I'm leaving, but we have men who have been credibly accused of intentional acts of sexual violence and remain in boardrooms, on the Supreme Court, in this very body, and worst of all, in the Oval Office. So the fight goes on to create the change that every woman and girl in this country deserves. Because we have an entire culture that has to change, and we see it in stark clarity today. The forces of revenge by a bitter, jealous man, cyber exploitation and sexual shaming that target our gender 
and a large segment of society that fears and hates powerful women have combined to push a young woman out of power and say that she doesn't belong here. Yet a man who brags about his sexual predation, who's had dozens of women come forward to accuse him of sexual assault, who pushes policies that are uniquely harmful to women, and who has filled the courts with judges who proudly rule to deprive women of the most fundamental right to control their own bodies, sits in the highest office of the land. And so today, as my last vote, I voted on impeachment proceedings, not just because of corruption, obstruction of justice, or gross misconduct, but because of the deepest abuse of power, including the abuse of power over women. Today, as my final act, I voted to move forward with the impeachment of Donald Trump on behalf of the women of the United States of America. We will not stand down. We will not be broken. We will not be silenced. We will rise, and we will make tomorrow better than today. That's Congresswoman, former Congresswoman now, I guess, uh, Katie Hill, Democrat from California, on her way out the door explaining why. Thank you, Katie Hill. Well, I, you know, I wonder, um, she surprised a lot of people by uh, resigning. Uh, what was done to her was obviously terrible. Uh, we'll have to see. I don't even know if the ethics uh, investigation moves forward now with her out of Congress. Uh, I do wonder if there was something more to it uh, as far as uh, that goes and that affair with the staffer, which is in violation of uh, House rules. Nonetheless, what Donald Trump has done, what uh, Justices Gorsuch, Gorsuch and uh, Thomas have, has, have done is far worse. And there was no accountability whatsoever. All right. Anyway, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Politico's Alice Olstein, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, you can download it along with all the other shows we have ever done for free at bradblog.com. You can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. And as ever, if you uh, enjoy anything about the Bradcast uh, or the Green News Report, please consider stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to make a one-time donation or better still, an automated monthly recurring donation. We uh, need your help. We appreciate your help now more than ever. All right, that is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>